0: Good evening. Congress averts a railroad strike but leaves labor seething. Was it a stab in the back? Oath keepers convicted of sedition and a mixed verdict sparked by the January 6th assault on the Capitol? And rage after Mayor Adams announces involuntary removal of mentally ill people from the streets. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news from Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. And on Wednesday, House Democrats elected a new generation of leaders and by acclamation, elected Hakeem Jeffries, the first black person in history to serve as minority leader. Jeffries nodded to his historic election, saying, I stand on the shoulders of Shirley Chisholm and others, the former representative from his district who, in 1968, became the first black woman to be elected to Congress. Jeffries added Democrats were willing to work with the GOP, but he says the party would defend against any threat to democracy.
1: We look forward
0: to finding opportunities to partner with the other side of the aisle and work with them whenever possible, but we will also push back against extremism whenever necessary. We love this country. We love our democracy. We love the Congress and the House of Representatives, the institution designed to be the closest to the people. And we're going to fight hard each and every day. We have this honor to serve in Congress to deliver. Also elected was Massachusetts Representative Katherine Clark as number two and Pete Aguilar of California in the third leadership spot. And they replaced Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her team. In in more Capitol Hill news, the House of Representatives moved urgently to head off the looming nationwide rail strike Wednesday, passing a bill binding companies and workers to a proposed settlement reached in September but rejected by the majority of workers. The measure passed by a vote of 290 to 137 and now heads to the Senate. If approved there, it'll be signed by President Joe Biden, who urged the Senate to act swiftly. Democrats and Biden, who is touted by White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre as America's greatest labor president, were put in the position of denying 12 unions that represented nearly 100,000 freight rail workers a win they passionately wanted. Earlier today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi offered a new bill to give the workers seven more sick days as a consolation prize, although that bill's future in the Senate is murky.
2: So today the House will take two important actions. First we will pass shutdown averting legislation to adopt the tentative agreement as negotiated by the railroad companies and labor leaders, and again with the administration at the table. Then we will have a separate up or down vote to add seven days of paid sick leave to the tentative agreement. This has always been our intention to do. We're doing it on the same day because of uh, the uh, end of session. Doing so fulfills our authority and responsibility under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution to ensure that the uninterrupted operation of critical transportation services and fight for fair... That's our responsibility as we fight for a fairer future for our workers. Let me be clear, a nationwide rail shutdown would be catastrophic. A shutdown would grind our economy to a halt and every family would feel the strain. As many of 765,000 workers, including many union members, would lose their jobs in just the first two weeks. Experts project it would cost the economy up to $2 billion a day and raise prices on consumers. House Speaker Nancy
0: Pelosi. Meanwhile, the organization Railroad Workers United, a caucus of railroad workers and their supporters, there are 13 railway unions in the caucus, says that while wages are good, the fight isn't about money, but the right to live and to have a life outside of work. A labor reporter with the Real News Network is Mel Boor. She spoke with the news.
3: Sort of union membership is actually 12 unions that uh, originally came together in a coalition to negotiate uh, a contract with the uh, rail carriers. That's uh, the multiple sort of multi million dollar companies that own and operate the railroads in the United States, um, the class one freight railroads. So mm-hmm. um, prior to this week, Uh, you know, back in September, I believe the last time that we we had a conversation, um, they uh, pushed through a tentative agreement that went back to the membership of uh, the 12 unions, and eight of those unions voted to ratify that agreement. They uh, approved it, and four of those unions uh, rejected it, Um, and that represents about 55 percent of the workforce on the railroads. So, Leading up to uh, this week, uh, what was uh, essentially we were in another countdown to a potential rail strike or rail uh, lockout on the part of the rail carriers um, and so the Biden administration pushed for the uh, the uh, Congress to um, essentially force these individuals to accept this tentative agreement, even though they had already rejected it. And that was what today's vote in the house was. Uh, the house voted to, um, you know, pass this emergency legislation that is essentially uh, forcing these workers back to work with the terms of the contract that was originally agreed upon back in September. Um And uh, unfortunately, on that tentative agreement that was agreed upon back in September, there were no provisions for what the unions were arguing for, which is the guaranteed seven uh, you know, multiple days of sick leave. Um, Right.
0: Well, they got seven days. Aren't they happy with that? Why aren't they happy with that?
3: Well, the the problem comes from, you know, what happens next, right? So the House could have, um, you know, they could have restructured this emergency legislation, this tentative agreement to include it. They did not. They tacked it on to the end of it with a separate vote, right? Mm. So even though the House has passed this legislation, this tentative agreement, and the seven days of sick leave, uh, the likelihood of it getting 10 Republican votes in the Senate is fairly low. Um, They, you know, most Republicans and most Democrats in the Senate will likely push forward with passing the tentative agreement, but they may strike down that sick leave. So ultimately you know, we're back at square, we're back at, you know, the problem that was brought forth to begin with, right? So these workers will be forced to go back to work um, and will not have that sick leave.
0: What about this cooling off period? There's just some sort of cooling off period. Is that what that is? What does that mean?
3: In the provisions of the Railway Labor Act, as you kind of move through these various hoops in order for these negotiations to move forward, there are a set number of cooling-off periods. It's usually around 30 days or so after the vote in November for the last of the rail unions to vote to either ratify or reject this tentative agreement. That cooling-off period began again, which is essentially to say, okay, you know, let's calm our, cool our jets, essentially, and, and take a step back. Let's reassess where we're at, give the folks a chance to maybe return to the bargaining table, which clearly did not happen. And we have a set deadline. So December 9th was the deadline, the end of this final cooling off period after uh, the unions had voted to either ratify or reject this tentative agreement, the last of them. Um, And uh, that was going to be the deadline that would have then opened the door for uh, either the unions to legally withhold their labor in a strike or for the rail carriers to legally lock out the unions and essentially you know, slow down freight traffic on the rails.
0: Why do they move 10 days early? How is that different from a cooling off period?
3: That is the question. Certainly the Biden administration could have given the union some time to try and uh, engage in more bargaining over the next, you know, it was 12 days out, right? I know a lot of rank and file members that I've spoken with are quite angry with the fact that they, they moved so quickly. How
0: about Bernie? What was Bernie Sanders on this?
3: Bernie supported the idea of pushing for seven-day sick leave, right? And he himself is signaled that he will probably potentially institute a number of procedural processes in the Senate in order to give people more time to bring Republicans over to passing this seven-day sick leave. This isn't a radical idea. It shouldn't be something that we should be split along partisan lines. We'll see what happens in the coming days, if they can push this legislation through, or if it's going to be another slowdown in the Senate to at least attempt to bring that seven-day sick leave into the agreement before they send it off to the White House.
0: Mel Boer is labor reporter with the Real News Network. In related news, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders tweeted on Tuesday, it's my intention to block consideration of the rail legislation until a roll call vote occurs on guaranteeing seven paid sick days to rail workers in America. And more news from Washington. A D.C. jury this week found Oath Keeper founder Stuart Rhodes guilty of seditious conspiracy. A rarely used charge, Rhodes was accused of plotting an armed rebellion to stop the transfer of power from Donald Trump to President Joe Biden. Of the other four defendants in the two-month trial, three, Jessica Watkins, Kelly Meggs, and Kenneth Harrelson, went inside the building during the attack. Meggs was also found guilty of seditious conspiracy. Attorney General Merrick Garland.
4: During the trial... The government's evidence showed that almost immediately following the November 2020 election, Defendant Stuart Rhodes, the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers, began planning to oppose by force the peaceful transfer of power. With Rhodes, Defendants Kelly Meggs, Kenneth Harrelson, Jessica Watkins, and Thomas Caldwell communicated and planned to travel to Washington on or around January 6, 2021. On January 6th, as the government's evidence showed, Defendants Meggs, Harrelson, and Watkins forcefully breached the U.S. Capitol wearing paramilitary gear while Defendants Rhodes and Caldwell remained outside on the Capitol ground coordinating activities. Last evening, a jury of the defendant's peers found each of them guilty of serious felony offenses. As the verdict of this case makes clear, The department will work tirelessly to hold accountable those responsible for crimes related to the attack on our democracy on January 6, 2021.
0: Both Rhodes and Meggs now face a maximum 20-year sentence on the charges. Harrelson Watkins and a fifth member, Thomas Caldwell, were found not guilty of seditious conspiracy. All five of the group members were found guilty of obstruction of an official proceeding. Rhodes, who prosecutors say acted as a battlefield general during the riots, was also found guilty of tampering with documents or proceedings. He was acquitted of two other conspiracy counts. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Close to home in New York City News, on Tuesday, Mayor Eric Adams announced an aggressive approach to mental illness in the city, hinging on a broad interpretation of a state law allowing a person who hasn't been charged with a crime to be picked up by police if they're
1: deemed a danger to themselves or others. We have abandoned people on the streets, and all of us know it. We, you all know it. You're watching people standing there on the street talking to themselves, don't have shoes on, shadow uh, shadowboxing, uh, unkept and we are walking by them. We're pretending as though we don't see them. And that first uh, month as the mayor was just so telling to me, sitting in those tents and those encampments, seeing human waste, stale food, dirty clothing, people who are dealing with mental health crises, and then we have the audacity to say that they should live that way? I'm just not going to do that. And I know some people may look at what we're doing, saying that we are trying to uh, do something to take away the right of people. No, we're not. The right is that people should be able to live in dignity. There's nothing dignified about living a month without having a shower. There's nothing dignified by using a corner of a tent as a restroom or having month old food sitting there, or talking to yourself, being disillusioned, or waiting until you carry out a dangerous act before we respond. That is just so irresponsible that we know that this person is about to probably go off the edge and harm someone. But we're going to wait until it happens. Not in this administration. We're going to be more responsive, we're going to be clear, we're going to be compassionate. But we're not punting this issue. We're going to face this issue head on, the way we face so many other issues. Mayor Eric Adams. Word of the mayor's plan sparked
0: advocates for the unhoused who push back against hospitalizing New Yorkers against their will. Critics say the plan could lead to mass roundups of people who need other social services. The New York State Director of the Drug Policy Alliance is Tony Smith-Thompson. She hinted at a legal challenge to the mayor's directive.
5: The directive as the mayor issued it is very vague and broad, likely unconstitutionally vague and broad, but the kind of more immediate issue for the Drug Policy Alliance and for Communities United for Police Reform is that as this gets rolled out, the first piece that's going to get rolled out is the more aggressive police response, the more present police response, um, police engaging with people on the street, and that has very direct and immediate harms to people.
0: What's the mayor thinking? I mean, is, there, is it possible to make things look better when we have a t- the heroin problem today the fentanyl problem the homeless problem it's it's all at unbelievable levels that we didn't even have 30 years ago.
5: there has been wide recognition and direct experience by a large part of our population that our systems over these recent years have been crumbling more visibly and more broadly than many people experienced that before. Now, a couple of years out, it's unreasonable to suddenly assume that all of the systems have been repaired and all of the harm that people have experienced have gone away. It hasn't gone away. In order to adequately respond to that, you need to provide what has not been provided. Providing people with housing, let's talk about the cost of housing, All of those systems have been fractured. As such, so has people's well-being. This conversation comes up really routinely when it comes to people with struggling with mental health, people with substance use disorder, people who are unhoused, where people want a quick fix. People want to not see visible signs that our society is not providing well for its people. And in the mayor's announcement yesterday, he specifically said this is going to take time. Well, It is going to take time and part of that response can't be to just sweep people away. Are we really committed to people's mental and physical well-being and the material resources to provide for their lives? Or do we just not want to see evidence that our city and society is not supporting people, not supporting community wellness?
0: Is this gonna turn into Mayor Adams' version of stop and frisk?
5: When you think about stop and frisk, again, you have these unnecessary points of contact of people being engaged by the police, police engaging in some kind of assessment of what they're looking for and then entangling people in the criminal legal system based on that determination. You have police as part of these response teams who are being charged to make assessments on the street in ways that they're not qualified to do. They're not qualified to provide care and they're not qualified to make assessments about what kind of care people need.
0: What about telemed throwing people away on the word of a doctor who didn't even examine them?
5: The mayor couched his announcement and underneath the umbrella of providing care. But we're really talking about police as first responders again. We're talking about while we fight to maintain funding for social services, the police budget has maintained the same and it has grown. And so the dollars are there. It's just about where we're investing the dollars. The police are trained to be a police force. They are not trained to provide care. So as police are conducting sweeps of encampments and throwing away people's belongings and being a really harmful presence for people and in their lives. A couple of days later, they're going to come back to people and say, oh, today we're here to provide care, so you should engage with us differently. It doesn't work. People are harmed by the police. They're traumatized by the police. And just their mere presence makes the rest of the plan's efficacy less so and harmful. And even kind of drawing out the experience of people being forcibly removed from where they are, that is traumatizing.
0: The implication I get from what you're saying is that what Mayor Adams said the other day or yesterday was just prettifying what has been the standard heavy-handed street sweep approach that Mayor Giuliani was famous for.
5: Yeah, and there's nothing in the plan to suggest that this will be any different or any less deadly than the NYPD's track record of engaging people struggling with mental health in the past.
0: How is CPR and how are the different groups that you're involved with going to do about it?
5: The mayor has, in different points and different plans, has echoed wanting to expand systems that confine people involuntarily, that kind of lean on a coercive system of treatment. We really need to be focusing on not seeking to improve a coercive system. What we should be doing is taking the lead from people with lived experience. We need more access to low threshold care. The assumption is that people who are on the street do not want care. When we are ignoring that there's a whole system of voluntary care, that people are not tapped into for various reasons. It's inaccessible, it's not culturally competent, there are cost barriers, there are waiting lists. There are many reasons why people are having barriers to accessing that care. There are 2,600 units of supported housing that are sitting vacant right now, so let's tackle those issues. Let's make sure that people can actually access voluntary care, which we know is more effective, rather than relying on these quick responses that don't actually provide care, but remove the problem from sight, displace people or place people in different settings where they are not visible to the public.
0: Tony Smith-Thompson is New York State Director of the Drug Policy Alliance. In more local news, labor reporter Robert Henley has a blog featuring the Internet version of his WBAI show. This week, he discusses a looming railroad worker strike and the fight to unionize Amazon workers. Henley spoke with the news about his show and the state of the city in the post-COVID world, where he says the poor and downtrodden are being forced to carry the burden of the pandemic.
6: We cannot discuss any of these issues which are presented as disparate events without looking at the underlying once-in-a-century challenge that we're still in the middle of. The problem is that the corporate news, the powers that be, have decided that we need to move off of the pandemic narrative. There's an increasing disconnect between what we're hearing in terms of news that describes supposedly our experience and what we're living day to day this kind of chaos in the landscape. We had a mass death event, which we're still in the middle of. We're losing 300 similar people a day to the pandemic alone. There has been a dramatic increase in cases. We have all these complications with a spike in respiratory ailments for small children. And yet, these stories are being described as discrete events. In reality, this for profit system is coming apart and you're seeing it in the fact that the unhoused and unsheltered mentally ill who've been in this circumstance for years now don't even have whatever fragmented system they had before the pandemic and now it's all coming down around us and what we do is we revert back to the scripts of law and order but it's the actual system itself which is breaking down
0: Tell us a little bit about your podcast.
6: We try to focus on both local, regional, and international labor issues because the mainstream corporate media is pretty much missing that narrative. We try to highlight worker struggles and have workers tell their own stories. We did the Cyber Monday edition, which uh, took a look behind the scenes of America's conveyor belt which delivers more and more materials at greater and greater convenience to consumers, but exacts a terrible price on workers in right-to-work states. The racist legacy of the United States still is on today and defines the the workforce. We're in an unusual downturn. Historically, recessionary periods or pre-recessionary periods, uh, we had people focus on the value of money, the tools that we have, that conventional economists look towards is controlling the value of money. This is throwing everyone for a loop because the very things that the Federal Reserve is resorting to is raising interest rates because they think that if they fix the value of money, they'll fix the problem in the economy. This is in the midst of a mass death event. The problem is a scarcity of labor. It's not capital. And this absolutely perplexes capitalists and people that worship in this universe they don't understand what's going on the scarcity of labor is not as you've heard in reactionary media that people love the life of riley and are living so large from the stuff they got from the government two years ago but because people died over a million people died and millions of people have been sidelined with long covid that's where people are hence now For the first time in my lived experience, the balance of power and leverage is going to workers. What we've been through is an anthropological shock because governments and businesses fail to protect us from a virus. And as a consequence, our psychologies have evolved in relatively short time to put a new hierarchy of need in place where family and community and our loved ones are now at the top of that pyramid. This is a tremendous threat to the economy as we have known it.
0: Labor reporter Robert Henley. You can hear Bob on WBAI, 7 a.m. every Monday. And that's the news for Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. The news was written and anchored by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.